Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are in the week of Valentine's right now. We are just completely enmeshed in the Valentine's uh, season with red and pink everywhere. Uh, yeah. Hideous flowers uh, and hideously priced flowers popping up everywhere. Mm-hmm. In fact, the podcast booth is full of balloons, red balloons. Yes. It's really annoying. Who left these here? Uh, Tech stuff. Probably. Love birds. So that's the thing about Valentine's. It brings uh, varying connotations. Uh, you know, it's a lot of people are really positive about it. It's a, it's a bright, happy, fun time full of love. Other people may legitimately hate it. Yeah. And, uh, it's it and so and then of course you have the the, the saying about how uh, the, there's a thin line between love and hate, right? That's right. And uh, and then while I've also seen people that get on the defensive about that and they're like, "There's no thin line. There's an enormous canyon between love and hate." <laughs> and uh, I, I don't. Oh, but do we have some information for yes. you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so today we're get, we're going to serve up a little bit of love, a little bit of hate, and some robots. Robots. Yeah. 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 So if the love or hate didn't have you, you know. Stick around for the robots. Yeah. Or come for the love and the hate. Stay for the robots. That's right. That's what I always say. That's your motto. Yeah. So there's something called limerence. Have you heard about this before? Uh, I actually had not heard of about this. I've, uh, I, I'm not really a, um, you know, even when Valentine's is around, I'm not super, you know, into it. So I have to admit, I hadn't really like read a lot about the science of love yeah. prior to this. Well, and I didn't realize that that. There's a term for when you are literally lovesick. Yeah, like this is the moment. Uh, like you know, picture any any movie, any romantic comedy or, or whatever. John Cusack, he's yeah. got the the boombox. Yeah, where I'm thinking specifically of you know where the the guy looks up and he sees the woman of his dreams, and then the music starts playing. Yeah, that works. Yeah, yeah. It's like in in but what's happening is limerence, right? Right. That person is connecting with a sort of near obsessive romantic love in his or her head. And there's all sorts of dopamine and uh, vasopressin and all sorts of good like oxytocin. The feel good hormones are raging. Yes. Because and and then and the judgment part of their brain is kind of shutting down a little bit. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. But but OK. So how do we know this? Well, we can hook lovebirds up to an MRI. Right. I mean, yeah. what else should we do but hook lovebirds up Scan to an MRI? Scan the bejesus out of them. That's yeah. right. So what's going on in that lovesick head of theirs? All right. So, you know, that the, the cool thing about the fMRI is that it can measure basically the blood flow to certain regions of the brain. Right. right. And uh, when we look at, uh, at, at the images, uh, often you'll see, like, bright colors and all. And that's just marking where... Where blood is moving around and where neural activity is taking place. Right. So someone, so if someone's eating chocolate or they're playing Pac-Man or they just, they want a lot of money or they're in love, we see the reward center of their brain yeah. start to light up like a pinball machine. Right. Yeah. So that's how we know when you're in limerence. That just doesn't sound sexy, does it? Yeah. I'm in limerence. Happy limerence day. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't work. So the, the thing I thought was really interesting about this too is that, um, According to an author uh, of Anatomy of Love, Dr. Helen Fisher, that when you are going through these changes, mm-hmm. the reason you say she's a love doctor. I would. OK. Yeah. The love doctor, <laughs> the limerence doctor, Dr. Helen Fisher. Um, she basically says that when you're heartbroken, hormones, mm-hmm. hormones can change again and you get another dopamine boost boost. Excuse me. So, you know, when you first fall in love and you, you get that dopamine boost, um, 
do you sometimes, you know, for some people who have experienced this before, do you sometimes have a hard time eating? You're not really hungry. Mm-hmm. That's the, the hormones changing. So the same thing occurs when you have a breakup or a heartache that that dopamine boost is happening again and you don't feel like eating. So, so you could have like one person could be like, oh, I'm so in love. I forgot to eat lunch today. And the other person's like, like my girlfriend just broke up with me. I forgot to eat lunch today. Yeah, it's like, absolutely. It's the same thing going on. Right. Yeah. Right. In the break room right now. <laughs> so you had talked about the thin line between love and hate. Yeah. There's an interesting study from the University of College London uh, where they actually, the, you actually had this one researcher, uh, I believe his name was. It is Samir Ziki. Samir Ziki. So Ziki has co- has coworkers, colleagues, and he's pretty sure that one of them hates him, right? Oh yeah. He's like, this dude just hates me. What's going on? He seems to just hate me. Yeah. And then he he starts looking into it a little more. He's like, like you know, and I think we've all had this with with various people. We like, I think this guy hates everybody. Right. He realizes it's not just him. Like this yeah. guy's irrational. This guy's miserable. Right. And he's done everything he can. He's tried to befriend this guy. He's been nice to him. He's you know, whatever. And this this guy still has hatred toward him. Yeah. But being a scientist, the the answer is let's scan it. Let's figure out what's going on. Yeah. Let's, let's nail this down. Let's figure out this hate thing. Yeah. And the interesting thing about this is that um, Samir Ziki and Andreas Bartels, uh, they, they conducted a previous study about mm-hmm. love. Um, and they used fMRI, of course. And they scanned the brains of 17 volunteers who described themselves as truly and madly in love. And so during the scans, each of them was shown pictures of their loved ones and then other pictures of neutral people. Uh-huh. And so that's how they could figure out that this part of the brain uh, lights up when someone is in love. Right. Right. So that is that that was sort of um, the the impetus for Ziki saying, OK, I, we know where love is. Let's find out about this hate and why my colleague hates me. So, yeah. So they they um, they ended up doing the, the same thing with uh, with with some other test subjects where they. They showed them pictures of people they hated, right? Mm-hmm. And what they found was that the, all right, when, when someone, when you're, when you're doing a love experiment, like people would see someone they love and the love circuit would, would light up to yeah. use the terminology and, uh, that they were using. The love uh, circuit. And then what, but then in this other experiment, mm-hmm. people would see someone they hate and the hate circuit would, would light up. Right. But the hate circuit and the love circuit, the same area. That's right. Right. So the it, same neural circuit. Yeah. So. On one level, there you go. I mean, that's uh, love and hate are are sharing some of the same uh, neural architecture. Right. And it turns out that those are two specific brain regions, right? It's the putamen mm-hmm. and the insular cortex. Yeah, the putamen is used to prepare the body for movement. So okay. to, to put it in like real caveman terms, uh, it would be like, oh, there's a pretty girl. I'll go get her. Or, Me likey? Yeah. Okay. And then the other one is, there's my enemy. I will go club. I guess you might, uh, the caveman would stereotypically club either. Okay. Right. Yeah. He would just there would be more bludgeoning involved with the enemy, uh, and more of a a loving uh, a love tap with the uh, cudgel on the head of the intended mate. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Hopefully. And then the uh, oh, and then of course you could also say that this is also like oh you would you would run to uh, the Putman is saying oh I love that person I'm going to run to help them. Uh, and keep them from falling off that cliff. Uh, okay. Whereas with the enemy, it would be like, like, oh, he's totally teetering on the edge of that cliff. I better give him a good kick. So that's the Putaman. And then there's, uh, again, the insula, which is associated with feelings of distress and jealousy. Right. Yeah. Again, that would, for both situations, right? Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, that dude's so successful. I hate him. Or, uh, you know, or, or then do you love me enough? Yeah. Yeah. I'm jealous. Yeah. Do you love Pac-Man more than me? Why are you playing it so much? But, you know? <laughs> The thing I think is really interesting about the study is that Zeke was kind of disappointed because he thought that the um, that the 
prefrontal uh, cortex where the seat of judgment is and reasoning, he thought that that was going to be deactivated a bit like it is with love and mm-hmm. hate. Right. And his idea was that, you know, if it's an irrational hatred, therefore, you know, someone's uh, faculties should be a little bit dimmed. Right. But it's the reverse. I mean, well, not the reverse, but it's more a situation where when you're when you're in love, the judgment falls off. But the uh, hate yeah, is love smart. is love is blind. Right. Yeah. When you're in love. Right. Because right. your your reasoning uh, dims. But right. When when you're hating, apparently you still have the ability to think analytically. And of course, his idea is like, OK, well, if that means that maybe because the Putaman is also um, in action here that the two would would allow someone to attack another person. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like if you see if there's somebody you like or even love and they have kind of goofy hair, you're probably going to let it go or not think about it. Right. But if you see red flags. Yeah. yeah. I mean, goofy hair is fine. <laughs> but if you hate somebody and they have goofy hair, you'd be like, oh, just look at his hair. It makes That's me so hair. mad. Yeah. Conan O'Brien. <laughs> every night. So I don't hate him. I actually like him quite a bit. Um, so yeah, so the, that's kind of covers that whole like thin line between love and hate. Definitely got the, the same circuits going on there. And then there's this other question that's recently cropped up and it's that can you really fall in love in a fifth of a second? Yeah. Love at first sight, right? That right. Staring out in the crowd, seeing the, the woman or man of your dreams standing over there and just, and then, you know, the music. Takes off and that's right. Whammo, the string love. quartet yeah. rises. There's a study by Syracuse University professor Stephanie Ortega, and uh, she determined that falling in love has the same euphoric feeling as using cocaine, but also that affects intellectual areas of the brain, which is interesting. Yeah. It's essentially running more blood to those areas, uh, dealing with mental representations, metaphors, and body image, and that it can also take less than a fifth of a second to fall in love. Now, let, let me break down the cocaine thing for a second for. Uh, um, anyone, break it no, down. I will break it down. Uh, and uh, got the, I grabbed this data from uh, from our excellent article by Stephanie Watson uh, on how stuff works, uh, called "How Crack Cocaine Works." All right, crack cocaine you smoke, so it goes the brain much faster than inhaled powder cocaine. All right, so crack cocaine gets to the brain and creates a high within ten to fifteen seconds. Normal cocaine is uh, ten to fifteen minutes, um, and then the effects can last anywhere from five to 15 minutes. Hmm. And then you have to do more cocaine because it, you know, it kind of sucks. So don't do drugs, do more love. Yeah. Because love uh, is, we're going to explore, like you you fall in love, like that stuff's going to last 15 months (laughs) at (laughs) least, you know, (laughs) cocaine, 15 minutes. And then, you know, it's just like, that's exactly right. That's, that's the whole limerence is what the shelf life is 15 months for limerence kind of love. Yeah. Love in one hand, cocaine in the other. One, you're just going to do you for um, for several months. The other, you're just going to be keep going, doing cocaine over and over again. All yeah. Night. So yeah. I think love is the obvious winner here. Yeah, they really need to uh, rethink their PSAs for for anti drug commercials. Oh, you they're know? saying like they need to rethink the cocaine uh, um, uh, ad campaign that they're not really getting it out there. Yeah, right it, <laughs> those cocaine marketing people are yeah. really asleep at the wheel. Um, but, but that study is interesting because it really does sort of indicate that it's the that the sort of passionate love is is again it's centered in the reward center, whereas like a maternal love or more long term love is found in the middle brain, mm-hmm. and uh, supposedly They're like a mother for a child or or. Um... You know, or a child for a parent, right? Yeah, or agape love too. Isn't that sort of like a agape one of, love? Yeah, isn't there's a, oh, like different yeah, types of love? Yeah, that's like a like a church thing, right? Where I've seen a, a I've seen church programs that are yeah. There's some there. I think there are some tr- yeah. that use 
that term, but I think it's one of like five different kinds of groovy loves you can have. Anytime I, I hear agape love, or at least used to, I would I would think of guppies in love, you know. So I think, oh, a little, Aww. little like you know salamander esque creatures falling in love. So. Guppies in love. Yeah. All right. Yeah. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of Tomorrow. But supposedly they're supposed to have a follow-up study about the fifth of a second thing, because that's sort of interesting. Like, you know, fifth of a second, you can, uh, you know, how do how do they know? Because that's the specifics weren't necessarily available. Well, I guess that. That you'd have to hook machinery up to like the kind of person who just falls in and out of love a lot, like you know, kind of like a Don Draper for Madman type, you know? Yeah. Okay. So they had to have like a high limerence. Yeah. Uh, quality. Well, or or at least. I'm not sure how it would, it would the kind of person who would conceivably fall in love and then fall in love because because if you have high limerence, aren't you more inclined to fall in love like once and stay in love? If we're saying Don Draper, shouldn't we just say lust? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. he's he's become the the icon of stupid man lust. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, a couple ladies have, I think, perhaps listed after him. Um, but then that brings me to the question about whether or not we could actually have like a true love. True love. True love. Okay. Like, one hundred percent pure. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like a completely um, unmitigated love. Could you have that limerence your entire life? Right. If if it weren't a lust limerence, if it was a pure love. So previous research is, has laid out uh, the fracture points in a relationship uh-huh. to be twelve to fifteen months. So okay. bingo. There's there's your limerence. Yeah. Like, anyway, like right? we're saying, like love. Can it will in many studies last fifteen months? Right, and then yeah. you've got three years as another sort of breaking point, and then the the seven year itch that we've all heard about. Right, and I think one thing to, uh, or at least my take on this is that when you're saying love ends after fifteen months, we're not saying like, oh, what am I doing here? It's like waking up for a dream and realizing you're you're in this life you want right. out of. You know, I, I, it's this this chemical thing that maybe that definitely becomes something else. You know. Well, yeah, you're, the, the chemicals sort of calibrate and they'd have to, yeah. right? I, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, I think it's like, it's pretty obvious. This is, we're kind of stating an obvious fact here, but love, really powerful. Oh, I just fell in love. That, that tends to calm down and become something more mature over time. Right. Like, can you imagine having that horrible, obsessive, teenagery kind of love? Oh. A- applied in your adult relationships Nobody throughout your life. Nobody would hang out with you. Because no, you know, no. generally, you know, love is great. And, and I, I love it when my friends are in, in love. But, but man, it's kind of tough to be around them if they're, they've only like, if they're, you know, they've only been in love with somebody for like, you know, a month or so. Yeah. And then you're like, wow, you guys really are not over this yet. Just like, take it down a notch. Wow. You really drove past the house like 50 <laughs> times again yeah. this evening. You're making out of my living room. What's going on? Stop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so researchers from Stony Brook U in New York compared the longtime couple's brains, a, a group of longtime couple's brains, to newly minted in love couples. Mm-hmm. And they found that one in 10 of the longtime couples, I believe there were 20 of them, exhibited the same chemical reactions when shown photographs of their loved ones as uh, people commonly do in the early stages of a relationship, this limerence that we're talking about. So they're, they're kind of super lovers. They call them swans because oh. they mate for life, right? Oh. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because, um, again, you've got that the, the fading point, 15 months, um, and the testosterone levels actually also, fade back. Also known as the Hornberger limit, I think. No, just kidding. My goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> I just blushed and I have no idea why. Um, but their testosterone levels are fading back to normal, right? And they still have like those shots of oxytocin um, that create a feeling of attachment, right? Because that's right. that's really what this boils down to. But they don't have the wild love, so the feelings of obsession, in theory, they shouldn't survive, right? They shouldn't be these these couples shouldn't be having the same sort of reaction, chemical reaction, as these yeah. newly minted in well, love. It, couples. It's kind of like if you're going to perform surgery on somebody, you want you know you may numb them up. Uh, or not surgery, let's say a dental procedure. All right. You may numb them up to, to perform this quick, uh, fairly, uh, you know, simple procedure, but then you want that numbness to wear off so they can have feeling again and actually right. use their mouth like a normal person. Uh, but, uh, but it's, but it's like the, the when the love lingers, when the, the limerence uh, remains so intense for so long, it's like it, to a certain extent it's kind of outlived its usefulness. Like it's right. more about like, let's, let's get this, uh, Let's get this relationship started. Let's uh, let's get everything sealed up and ready. It's like you know, let's hire a hundred guys to start building this uh, this this house, and then we'll split the work crew down to fifty to to get the real work done. Right, right. So, but but then the uh, the researchers were kind of like, well, so what? Why is it that they have this chemical reaction, and mm-hmm. and they're not like sitting here like frenching on the waiting room couch as we're doing this study? Like, why are they? You know, they, they, they seem to be these longtime couples in love with each other, but they're not like a, this other group that's, they're all frenching on the couch. Right. But I just made all that up, but you know what I'm saying? Um, they're trying yeah. to figure out why, why their brains are reacting this way. So it's kind of like, it's the difference between seeing like a really old couple and, and that they're still in love and going, ah, oh, and then a really old couple that are still in love and going, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so they they said, and they're in sort of, I, I think, clinical terms. They said that that sort of romantic love was able to mature into intensive companionship and sexual liveliness. Okay. So the swans, they could control themselves, I suppose. That's hmm. that's the mature part of it. Oh, well, good. Yeah, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. They're not just completely out of control out there. Okay. I'm imagining that they're not. Okay. But their brains are still lighting up because they truly and madly still love each other. The the, the key here, I'm guessing, is that swans need to find swans. Exactly. Right. And and that would seem to like how do you do that? You can't really like put put that out there and be like, I'm a person that'll you know fall in love with you and stay in love with you forever. I just need somebody else who's exactly the same as me. Because it seems like you're going to get a lot of people who are just just like, oh, well, that sounds. Who doesn't want to fall in love with somebody who's going to love you back? forever and be like powerfully in love with you you know is this your your uh, dating website idea yeah the swans? like if the swans had their own dating site Lewis, i feel like people would abuse that yeah they yeah. would they would claim to be a swan and not be a swan unless the thing is that you had mandatory um like uh, brain scans because i believe oh, yeah. uh, actually to go back to the uh the hate circuit researcher mm-hmm. uh that was one of the uh the possible uses they were talking about it's like being able to uh have the the evidence uh, admissible in court right so that it's like hey i think so and so murdered uh um dave here because uh he hates him let's test him and see if he hates him show him a picture oh red light lit up that means he hates him yeah send that guy to jail he totally hates him i i like this idea it's like a like a photo booth for uh-huh. love right except for you're getting your brain scanned yeah, well, kind of like the old, like they have those, uh, those old contraptions where you like the love tester, where you like squeeze a, a joystick and then it lights up to show how. Yeah, how much you love. Yeah. It would be kind of having, like having a scientifically accurate one of those. And then every little, like you get in a, people get in a fight with their spouse or something and they're like, you still love me? And then goes like, yeah, of course, prove it. We're going right. down to, uh, the <laughs> Shoney's where they have that love, uh, Love tester up, and we're gonna we're gonna test this. Yeah, and yeah. think about—I mean, Larry King could have really been helped out by this. I think could he? Y- yeah, I'm not up enough on my Larry King lore. Uh, oh, 
he's he's sort of like the Elizabeth Taylor of the uh, of really? the male world. Yeah, he just keeps getting married and married over again. But maybe it doesn't. Maybe he's not really doesn't care about the, that reward center lighting up in his partner's brain. Oh, okay. So are you thinking it would have it, this technology would have helped Larry King find a ferreted mate? out a, okay. a true mate for him? Or is it or is the reverse? I mean, I don't know enough about him. Is it a situation where the rest of the world needed this device to protect them from Larry King? <laughs> That may very well be actually the answer right there. Um, yeah, so I like that. I'm, I'm liking this idea of this sort of photo booth uh, scan that couples can just duck into. And then they can show their children later on, like, here's this little film strip of us in love, our brains. Look at it. Well, that was another thing they brought up is that by under, the more we understand love and and ultimately hate and, and heartbreak, the, the more that we can we can sort of rationalize it. Like that was, that was one of the arguments that, that we understand what's happening chemically in our brains when, mm-hmm. when we're feeling heartsick. Then, then we can, we can understand it and, and, and make sense of it more and deal with it better. So, huh. I don't know. I, I never, I never had, I don't think I had the scientific, uh, info when I was going through heartbreaking situations. No, I didn't either. Yeah. I'm not sure if. I'm ready now. I hope I don't, have... I'm not put to the test, but I'm saying I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. All right. For now, until I forget everything we research. So. Yeah, so it's, it needs to happen in the next fifteen minutes because then I flush all this data. All right, I'm turning you... my phone off. <laughs> in that case, uh, let's talk about robot sex. Yeah, as long as we're talking about machines and love, then maybe you know maybe we don't need a machine to quantify love between two humans. How about just love between a human and his or her sex bot? Okay, so I mean we've seen some some of this in the media, right? Like, oh it, yeah. Uh, 2007, David Levi wrote the book Love and Sex with Robots. And so he posits that in the very near automated future that will undoubtedly, undoubtedly having sex with, uh, robots and will have de- developed like robot prostitute sex bots. Yeah. Well, and to a certain extent, we, you know, we definitely already have this technology. It's come to fruition, yeah. right? Do not do an uh, image search on any of this, but, uh, but there, there are these things called real dolls, mm-hmm. which are basically dolls. They're human. Looking things. Tactile, yeah. like they feel like human flesh, sort yeah. of. And one can, can, can conceivably, um, engage with said. They are item. anatomically correct. Yes. That's, yeah. And, uh, and then there, this was in, just in the last year, but, um, the company, uh, True Companion LLC unveiled a prototype of uh, something called Roxy with three X's, of course, mm-hmm. uh, at Las Vegas' 2010 Adult Entertainment Expo. And it basically looks like an inanimate sex doll, and uh, but it uh, allegedly boasts enough artificial intelligence and pre-recorded f- uh, phrases to engage in pillow talk. So yeah. it, it looks really creepy. Do not do an image search for that one either, because even like the press images for that one, I had to look it up for an article and... Uh, it's in to, to my mind pretty creepy. Looking. Yeah, and uh, apparently too, she, you know, she could be programmed. Um, and if you, this is this isn't from an article that I read. It says that she may even per a metallic sounding that gets me hot after you introduce a topic like soccer. Ugh. See, you know who wants that? I, I I don't know. It's like I'm just saying. I'm i just in terms of why do you want your robotic partner being getting aroused at the at soccer talk. I mean that's that's keep that out of the weird situation. I know. I know. I know. And and we're talking 9000 clams here. So <laughs> I mean, you know, the do you want your a car or do you want your sex bot? Yeah. I mean, I get it. Uh, you know, it's it's that sort of easy way out in relationships, but and this is where it gets interesting. Um there is uh, 
a woman named Sherry Turkle, and she's a psych professor at MIT, and she's been studying robots and human interactions since the 70s. And turns out that one day she found herself smitten with their office robot, Cog. Cog, okay. Is his name. Hoping uh, that he would turn his head her way when she spoke and, and was wishing to be around him more than her actual coworkers. Now, what did Cog do? What was his function? Now, he wasn't like a Roomba or anything, was he? I mean, not that no. there's anything wrong. I don't want to get all class sensitive about where, who who and which robot you can fall in love you're, with. You're judging the robot that she falls in love with. Um, I think that his, I think this was maybe in the earlier part of, of um, AI at MIT. And so his main function, I think, was to turn around and to engage with a human. So oh, okay. if if yeah. I were to be talking, he would turn around and act like he was listening to me. And then I would think, oh, he's, he, he's listening to me, he understands me. So... Um, she's been, Turkle's been a huge proponent of social, of uh, social technology, um, but she now is kind of looking at the last 40 years of her career and her studies, and she's weaving a cautionary tale from her fi- field research, which is filled with hundreds of interviews with children and teenagers and adults and the elderly encountering mm-hmm. tech gadgets. And over and over, she would see how even the most basic robotic dog or baby doll or even just a shell of a of a robot could spark a deep emotional response. Yeah, I think uh, there's no question that we're good at like I don't question for a second that a human could fall in love with a robot. I mean, we can we can fall in love with non-robotic uh uh machine uh, things, you know? Like yeah. be it there's a be it a real doll or a, like a stuffed animal. I mean, there are even uh there's one particular delusional uh misidentification syndrome called uh, syndrome of delusional companions. Uh, oh. where you end up uh, looking to things like maybe a, something that's some sort of item that you have an association with. And this was a typical, typically seen in like Alzheimer's patients. Okay. But uh, th- they begin uh, uh, getting, the, they have these comforting associations with the toy and then they start experiencing the toy as a sentient uh, thing and they, mm-hmm. and they keep, uh, they, they're a triggered associated behavior. So, well, and, and see, that's interesting because what Turkle is basically saying is that that's that's where it becomes an ethics question mm-hmm. um, between AI um, developers and the community at large. Because if you're going to keep using robots in society, and eventually they come to, you know, we already have ones that can sponge bathe an elderly person, right? Mm-hmm. Um and you program them so that they're so nuanced that they really do have all these different ways of communicating with a human, then what, you know, what are we, what sort of, what sort of uh, society are we setting up? And what are we doing with our human emotions when you're projecting love onto something that can't love back? Yeah. And then that brings me to the other question is, is, is love just a mirage in the first place? Are we doing that with humans anyway? So is my concept of love for one person, is it even my idea of that person and that love? Is that even realistic or concrete? Yeah, it's kind of, I think there was a line in uh, Terry Pratchett's uh, Hogfather, uh, where some wizards have created a computer and, and uh, one of the wizards asked about whether it's, uh, you know, it's actually thinking. And it's like, no, it, it just appears to be thinking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're like, oh, well, it's just like everybody else then, you know? So, I mean, uh, there, there comes a point where when, when you, when you look at the possibility of robots faking things that are human, you have to also look inward at us and say, well, what, how many things, how many aspects of the human experience are to some extent or the other of fate? You know, right. everything from consciousness to to love to hate. If you get down and you analyze it enough, and you break down, uh, like even things like free will, mm-hmm. um, it, it gets down. You, you can you can break it down to the point where it where the magic disappears. It's uh, I think our, the way our Scott Baker put it um, when in talking about his book uh, Neuropath was that uh, 
things like consciousness, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're like, um, they're, they're, it's, it's all part of like a, like a coin trick, a magic trick. And we are the magic. And so if you, uh, if, if you explain away the trick, mm-hmm. like we're the magic that disappears. Huh. Okay. So, so love could just be another construct of the mind. Yeah. So eventually we create machines that can, that are just as good at creating this kind of magic and we either buy into it or we don't buy into it. It's kind of like, I feel like, you know, every day you can sort of make a choice whether to buy into the magic of life or not. You know, you're going to see the person next to you as a, as this, uh, this spongy, uh, organ sitting in a skull and, you know, flooded with different chemicals and, you know, plotting through its day thinking it's conscious or, um, or do you look at them as something better? I don't know. Well, I mean, when the technological singularity comes, will we even have a choice? Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. I think you will have to love robots. Yeah. But maybe, maybe the robots, maybe the robots will be worth loving. That's my, my hope. I know. Yeah. I know. I, I love that you're optimistic about that. Yeah. <laughs> not, I mean, loving in a, not in a sex bot fashion, but who knows? Right. You know, a few generations from now that may make total sense. And they'll look back on me and go, whoa, that guy was really out of line when he said a, a human should not marry machines that have the name like Roxy with three X's. Yeah, you're right. I mean, like, how judgmental. So I think that's a pretty good uh, Valentine note to end on. That's our Valentine to you. Yeah. To everybody. If you if you, if you you have somebody in your life, great. If not, just wait for robots. Um, it'll, it'll be around eventually. But <laughs> Or uh, save up for Roxy. Yeah. But anyway, you know, some, some, uh, some different ways to think about love and hate and uh, what they have to do with each other and what they have to do with uh, whatever you're going through right now. So, hey, I have some Mr. Mail. Oh, bring it yeah. on. All right. Some fairly short ones here. Gabriel writes in, he says, and he's re- responding to our Life on the 500th Floor episode, which seemed to be pretty popular with folks. Uh, says, Julian Robert, I don't know who would write uh, a feature Romeo and Juliet uh, in which the characters live in ancient skyscrapers, but I can tell you that the Skybridge fight scenes would be awesome. A curse on both your ancient skyscrapers. <laughs> hmm, needs work. Have a better one, Gabriel. So There uh, it is, yeah. and it works. Yeah. It's, it's taking form. Keep, uh, keep thinking up those ideas, people. Um, then also Ryan writes in, Hey, Robert and Julie, I was listening to the High Animals podcast, the uh, one about junkies in the animal kingdom. Yeah. And I thought you ought to know that you can't uh, get nicotine lotion, but I have seen caffeinated body soap. Apparently, if you use it in your morning shower, it'll help you wake up in the morning as a substitute or in addition to coffee. All right. I need uh, all the help I can get. I'll try it out. Yeah. Uh, then we also heard from, uh, well, another, um, oh, it's the same Ryan. Well, we'll, we'll save that one for later. Um, but then, uh, Joel writes in and Joel says, Hey guys, I'm an avid listener. I've been meaning to send this reference in for some time, but I only just got around to it. I was reminded when you talked about it again at the end of the Life Aquatic podcast. There's a great book by an author which tackles exactly the problem of living in a giant building interconnected with all the amenities. In J.G. Ballard's novel, High Rise, a massive building is being filled with people, rich at the top, less well-to-do on the bottom, including shopping malls and swimming pools. The novel takes a creepy turn when floors, based on socioeconomic standing, begin fighting with each other, even killing. People stop leaving the building, sabotage elevators, booby-trap hallways, and form tribal groups. Even cannibalism and rape begin. Certain figures become king-like and rule over different areas of the high-rise, warring with each other uh, in the end not to totally wreck it, Few survive the chaos. Definitely a great read. You can uh, watch organized society break down within this one massive building. Um, so that's uh, that's cool. J.G. Ballard is an author that I have been meaning to read for some time, and I have uh, 
uh, I have friends who keep telling me, you know, you got to read this. You got to you got to read his short stories. They're supposedly really awesome. And yeah. uh, that, this is the second time someone's mentioned skyscraper to me, but I didn't I didn't even think about it lining up with everything that I was requesting right. uh, at the end of that podcast. Huh. Yeah. Cool. I'm going to check into it as well. Cool. So if you have any anything you want to add to this, uh, feel free to interact with us on Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. Uh, we update that uh, pretty regularly with neat links to stuff at How Stuff Works and elsewhere on the web. And if you've got any comments about love, hate robots, please do drop us a line at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.